brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. How we doing out there, people? From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and it seems like a beautiful day in the neighborhood to me. Except for the decrepit roads and bridges, the terrible air quality, the plastic piling up, the tents lining most of the sidewalks, and the out-of-date everything. But I'm trying to stay positive. But we all know that's not an easy task these days, when many people are at the end of their financial rope, snared in one banking bear trap or another. Is it the high-interest student loans you signed up for when you were just a kid that'll never go away? Was it the persistent junk mail that made getting a few more credit cards feel like a good idea? Or is it just that your cog-in-the-wheel job at the base of some billion-dollar pyramid won't cough up enough money for you to live comfortably? I'm sure many of us are feeling one pinch or another, and the truth is the system isn't broken, it just wasn't built for you. Well, today's returning guest Ellen Brown has plans to make a system that is. She was with us all the way back in 2015, and it is a real treat to have her back today. She is the founder and chair of the Public Banking Institute, a senior fellow at the Democracy Collaborative, and the author of 13 books, including Web of Debt, The Public Banking Solution, and her most recent release, Banking on the People, Democratizing Money in the Digital Age. She's also always adding interesting articles and writings to her blog at ellenbrown.com, and I am pretty psyched for this show. So here she is, the economic educator extraordinaire, the public banking true believer, and the real MVP in the fight against the FED. Ellen Brown, welcome back to the higher side. Thanks, Greg. That was a quite an introduction. <laughs> I try. I try. You got to get them hooked. I mean... The economy is dry. It's dry material, but That's right. thanks so much for doing this. I really did love your new book. It's full of really good creative ideas that could transform the Rockefeller Rothschild debt-based system of rule into something that empowers rather than enslaves. Even though something like the banking system does feel a bit too big to change, you are great about showing real-world examples for the things that you propose. And I think that's important to encourage people to believe that things can actually change. But to get us going here, you've been writing about the financial system and the prospect of a public banking system for quite a while. 
what value does this new book add to your catalog? What makes it different? And how do you introduce people to banking on the people? Okay, my three books on this subject were Web of Debt, The Public Bank Solution, and this one. So in Web of Debt, the subject was basically that banks, not the government, create our money supply, which at the time, it was first issued in 2007, and that was shocking to, you know, people didn't even necessarily believe that. I, I had to write a whole book just to be convincing, because everybody thinks that it's the government that prints our money, it's the government's, it's presidents that we see on the faces of our dollar bills and our coins, but in fact, virtually all, like more than 95% of the money supply is created by banks in the form of loans. And then in 2014, the Bank of England actually came out and said that. The, bank, the Federal Reserve had said it before that in the 60s, but in a kind of obscure publication. But that was one of the things I cited in Web of Debt. So now the Bank of England has actually said it. The Bundesbank has said it. So it's pretty well accepted that that is the way banking works, that when a bank issues you a loan, it doesn't actually pull the money from anywhere else. It just writes that money into your account. They do need the deposits eventually in order to balance their books when when money goes out of the bank. But they, they've got money going out and coming in all day. And other banks are also creating money on their books. So with any luck, if they get as many deposits in as they as are pulled out, their books will balance and they they don't have to borrow at all. But if they do need to borrow, they'll bar borrow from first from their deposits because that's the cheapest place they can get the money. And if they run out of deposits, they can borrow in the repo market, which is part of the shadow banking system, or probably the most expensive way to do it is to borrow from the Federal Reserve. But they've always got that back backup, so there's always somewhere they can borrow. Anyway, that was the subject of Web of Debt. And at the time when I wrote it, I thought, well, this is shocking. We've got to stop banks from creating money. And then the more I thought about it, though, it seemed like banks creating money was not actually a bad idea. It's not really the bank that's creating money. It's really us. We go to the bank. If you tried to write an IOU out to your grocer, the grocer wouldn't take it, cause, or at least my grocer wouldn't because I live in a big city. The grocer doesn't know me. But if I go to the bank and write out my IOU in the form of a mortgage or some other loan, the bank will take it because they know they're going to find out who I am. They'll do a lot of paperwork. I'll probably have to post some collateral like my house. They will they will make some interest on the deal. So it's it's worth it to them to take my IOU. So basically what they do is turn my IOU into their IOU, something that they so they're basically a guarantor of my IOU. So it really is initiated by the borrower. So we're really using the bank to turn our own credit into something that we can, that's fungible, that we can spend in the marketplace that, that businesses will take. So not a bad idea. The, what's wrong with the system is not that banks create money. It's that the banks are privately owned. And and their, their motive, their... Uh, their mandate is to make as much money as they can for the shareholders. And the shareholders, of course, want their money right now. So they're always looking day by day for for profits. So the bank has to always think short term. They have to take, if they have a choice between a $5 billion hedge fund loan and a $50,000 small business loan in your local 
town, they will always take the hedge fund loan, even though your small business loan is a perfectly good loan, but it's going to be more trouble. It's, well, it's going to be the same paperwork, and it's not going to make them near as much money, and it's probably going to be a little riskier because the hedge fund is probably going to be a more profitable deal. So they're not geared towards serving the public interest. And in fact, they're geared toward exploiting the public interest. They are takers versus makers. So they're not in the business of necessarily encouraging productivity, which is what, you know, local markets are, local businesses. That's where most of the hiring comes from. And they're the ones that make actual stuff that you can actually use. Whereas banks are dealing in the financial the financialized economy and dealing with customers who are not necessarily making anything, but just maybe buying, borrowing money in order to say buy out a company or to, you know, they're, they're out to make money, but not necessarily to make products. So the public bank solution was basically on how, or it was, I cited various, models around the world of publicly owned banks. We've only got one, the Bank of North Dakota, but in other countries, 25% of the banking banks globally are publicly owned, and many of them are very good models. And for example, in China, 80% of the banks are publicly owned. And I'm now a senior fellow at the Democracy Collaborative, and they, they asked me to write just two articles, one, two 50-page articles. One was supposed to be on how to eliminate too big to fail. In other words, basically on the regulations and whether they worked or what regulations would work. And the other would be on how to set up a national public banking system. So I started writing on that, and I got way over 50 pages. And so they agreed that I could just turn it into a book, and they said they'd like to publish it. So they did. And But for me, what it did was force me to think through all the nuances of actually setting up a system, not just for your local community or not just one public bank like the Bank of North Dakota, but for the whole country and what that would mean. And it does seem to me, because we've been – I'm chairman of the Public Banking Institute, and we've been working on this project since 2010. So that's nine years now. We've been dealing with politicians. We've had at least 50 bills that have been filed. We've got over 25 bills that are actively being pursued right now. So we know what the roadblocks are, and we know what we're going to be up against. We, I mean, we're, we've got great momentum right now in California, so we're very hopeful, and Pennsylvania, and New York, other places, so we're hopeful of getting one of these banks set up one of these days. But one thing I can see that we really need is we do need to bring in the federal system. You need the banking, the backing of the Federal Reserve. You need a deep pocket, because politicians will always say, well, what if, what if the bank you know, loses money, will the taxpayer be on the hook? But there is a way to, we could be getting interest-free loans from the Fed in the same way that the Federal Reserve made interest-free loans to the banks to bail out the banks in 2008. The states could be could and should be getting interest-free loans, but it's not in the Federal Reserve Act. So when that was broached by President Obama to... Ben Bernanke, head of the chairman or chairman of the Fed at that time, Ben Bernanke said, "Well, he couldn't do it because it wasn't in the Federal Reserve Act." 
So we need to change the laws. So right now, modern monetary modern monetary theory is quite popular. Or you read a lot about pros and cons, and their pitch is that when the government spends, it creates money. I agree that's how it should be, but that's not actually the way it is right now because of the way the law is. We need to change the law in order to allow the government to create money when it spends. Hmm. So that was a long answer to a short question. I think that's that's really great. I mean, obviously, I wanted to get into how this could be possible. A lot of people probably are still of the mindset that we just need better regulation. You address that pretty early on in the book that regulation is not going to fix this because it's fundamentally designed against our interest. And I also think it's wise to try to use the system we have to a degree or use some of the infrastructure, you know, rather than just collapse it down to nothing and rebuild. I mean, there probably is a way to just switch the incentives around and kind of use something that we have in place, even though right now it's not working for us, we probably could make it work for us. Because the other thing people talk about is that we just need to dismantle it and that we need to break up the banks. And that's another thing you address in the book. And maybe you can talk to us about why breaking up the banks and regulation, these aren't the solutions we need. What we need is public banking. Right. Well, the banks that they want to, that, the people that are talking about breaking out the banks, the glass reimposing the Glass-Steagall Act, for example, are they're talking about the big international Wall Street banks. But those banks actually serve essential functions that you don't really want to get, or you can't get rid of those banks. They do all the repoing, internationaling. They they do do all the more sophisticated type. They, they deal with big international companies. They deal with, they're actually the bankers for governments. So instead of breaking them up, it seems to me what we need to do is to nationalize them. Of course, they would have a fit if we tried to nationalize them right now, but it's looking like we could be heading for another collapse, just like we had in 2008. I mean, many people are predicting that, that we just can't go on like this, the debt Debt levels are higher than they've ever been, particularly sovereign debt, which not just ours, but all around the world, all governments are more heavily in debt than ever. And why is that? Who are they in debt to? They're in debt to the banks. So the next time we have a 2008-style Great Recession, that's what they called it, but really, really for half the population or more than half the population, it was actually a depression. The next time that happens, rather than doing a bailout, which I don't imagine Congress will do. I mean, the Dodd-Frank Act says that they're not going to do a bailout. The next time they'll do a bail-in, which means that they're supposed to hit up their creditors first. And so the banks will turn their creditors' money into capital for the bank. So they're basically going to steal their creditors' money, and, and the depositors are the largest class of creditor of any any bank. Theoretically, the depositors are protected by FDIC insurance, but FDIC insurance isn't going to go that far, particularly because under the Dodd-Frank Act, derivatives and repos go first. So they, and those, those creditors 
are much, much bigger than the depositors. So they will snatch, or the, you know, the, what they will allege is owed is much bigger. So they will snatch the bulk of the assets of the bank, and there's just not going to be anything left for the, for the depositors. The FDIC has not nearly enough money to cover all the deposits. It's theoretically guaranteeing it's got a $500 billion credit line with the U.S. Treasury. But even $500 billion isn't going to be enough if we're talking about multiple trillions of derivatives that will wipe out what anything the bank had. So anyway, next time around, they actually discussed the nationalizing the banks in 2008. Obama said that too, or that was broached. The reason they didn't do it was that the thought was that that meant that the U.S. government would have to assume the liabilities of the banks, so they would have to pay off pay off the loans. But that's not true. These banks created the loans on their books. The loans could just be written off. The only reason they can't be written off is because we have banking laws that say they can't. But we can change those laws, or what we could do is move those lo- loans onto the books of the Federal Reserve, and we have the 2008 pre- precedent for that because they already did it. They bought mortgage toxic mortgage-backed securities off the books of banks and moved them onto the Fed's own books, and that's how they freed up the balance sheets of these banks. So they did things that... <laughs> Now they've established a precedent. So they, it, it was a game changer, really. The fact that the Fed stepped in and did all these amazing, outrageous things. Now we can, they can't, they can no longer say we can't do that. We can, we can say, yes, you can. Look, you just did it. You did it for the banks. Why can't you do it for the states? You did it for the, you were able to buy off their bad loans. Why can't you do that for these big banks if we nationalize the big banks? And then the government would be in control of these big Wall Street banks and, and could carry on with the business that they do, but in the public interest. And there's actually, a, I thought it was a great example in India, Indira Gandhi in, I think it was the 1960s, their, their banks were doing perfectly well, but she said, she said that they weren't, their, their big banks were not serving the public interest, that the people were suffering and the big banks weren't catering to them. So she just stepped in and nationalized them, even though they weren't insolvent. I mean, we could certainly do it if we if our banks were insolvent. But she did did it when they weren't insolvent, just because the whole model. It was a socialist country; they'd gone socialist, and the banks weren't serving this socialist plan. And so she just took them over. I thought that was amazing that she got away with it, and the people the people loved it. We couldn't do it here, but we could do it if the banks were insolvent. Well, that's another thing I was curious about is back when we had the huge 2008 collapse, there was all this talk about how we can solve this mess. And there were some things proposed that seemed like they'd be better for the people and some things proposed that seemed like they'd be better for the banks. And of course, no one really went to jail. Yet in other countries, there are some who didn't bail out the banks, who actually jailed some of these bankers and then change their laws and change their system fundamentally, like Switzerland, some of the some European countries. How are they doing now compared to how we're doing with the changes that we made? Well, Iceland was the 
at the time, it was really dramatic that the, they had thrown their bankers in jail and they had refused to bail out the British depositors. But in fact, unfortunately, <laughs> they have now backtracked. And so mm. they, all those all those people were, who were in jail just served. It wasn't very many. And they they just served short sentences. And now they're out. And now... I mean, it is amazing how the whole world seems to be going conservative. Like, look at Latin America. It used to be very strongly socialist or Bolivarian, you know, the, the, the Bolivarian revolution where they were attempting to be independent of the Western system. But now they've just totally caved. I mean, all those Latin American countries have now gone neoliberal. So we obviously pulled that off. How we did it is <laughs> probably, you know, we used guns when we had to. It's that whole uh, confessions of an economic hitman sort of modus operandi. Right, right. And that kind of brings me to the next point, which is like, it's good to know what we could do. I mean, you look at this giant economic mess. It's very confusing. It's nice to know that someone like you has an answer on the table and has fleshed it out well. but. There's a big difference between that and actually implementing that idea. I mean, these entrenched powers, as you say, they're very big. They seem too large to overcome. It's hard to get people on the same page about something as simple as should you be locked in a cage for having marijuana on you? I mean, that's a pretty simple thing. And then this is like a big, complex argument where, you know, these entrenched powers are very savvy at propaganda and making this sound like uh, it would ruin the world. They're, they use a lot of fear tactics and saying, like, if you do this, it could collapse everything. So it seems really hard to to actually implement this. Talk to us about the positive sides of that. You said 25 active bills. I mean, that's something. Right. Well, and we're, we're m making more and more progress. In uh, California, we had... Our first bill was filed on, in 2011, and it was for a feasibility study for a state-owned bank. It passed both houses of the legislature, and Jerry Brown didn't sign it. And his reasoning was that it was for a blue-ribbon committee, which I guess cost some money, and he said we didn't need to have another blue-ribbon committee, that we could do it in-house, that we already had a banking committee. But we never heard any more about it after that, so that... Of course, it died. <laughs> it died behind closed doors. So now we've got a bill. It's SB eight fifty seven to change some of the laws to make it easier to for cities to establish their own banks. And that bill has also it's passed all the committees except one. It's on its last committee, and it's actually, they're actually hearing that on August, uh, tomorrow, August 29th. And so we'll see, assuming it pass, passes that committee, and then it has to go back to the whole assembly because uh, they, they modified it some. And assuming the governor signs it, which we think he will, because Governor Newsom has expressed his support for public banks, then this will make it much easier for cities and counties or and the state but for for any government entity to set up its own bank and we had a bill for example in los angeles or, or it was a 
resolution. The city of L.A., the L.A. City Council, put it to the voters, whether the voters wanted to have a city-owned bank. And the reason they did that was there was this obscure clause in 1913 that said if the government wanted to go into any sort of business that it would have to get voter approval. So that's why they did it, because their legal counsel said that was the first step. But the president of the city council is very strongly in favor of a city-owned bank, and the measure got 42% of the vote, even though we had only three months to do it. I mean, it was a surprise to us, the public banking advocates. But the reason it got as far as it did is we had this very active, dynamic, millennial group that was just out there beating the bushes. And they're very savvy in uh, social media. The, the first hurdle was you had to pay money in order to get to be a committee in order to even you know, try to raise money for for a campaign when they were trying to solicit somebody, I don't remember, but in a lawyer or somebody, he said, uh, oh, well, I know you must have some money because I saw your videos that you made. And they said, no. They said, we're all under 30. <laughs> we know how to make this stuff. So they've already, they've got the talents and they've got the zeal. It's rather like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York. I mean, they've they've mm -hmm. also got a public banking activist movement going, but it's so it's that same mentality. Although we're here in L in California, I'm in LA, so this is that's my my city. But here we try not to be so political. I mean, it's not about tearing down the president or any of those things. It's just about creating a publicly owned bank. And a publicly owned bank, even though it sounds socialist, our number one, our only case, the Bank of North Dakota, is in North Dakota, which is a very Republican conservative state. So it serves people on all sides. And one reason I try not to talk politics is that at the Public Banking Institute, we've got supporters from all sides. And every time I say anything that even veers on being political, then I'll get, you know, pushback from somebody. So, <laughs> Yes, that makes sense. Conservatives like public banks just like, like liberals do. They like it, like in North Dakota, they like it because for them, it's all about keeping our money in the state to, for our own purposes. So that's a very conservative thing, conserving our money. For, it's a big farming state, so originally it was a farmer's movement. The farmers were losing their farms to the out-of-state bankers, and so they banded together and formed a political party called the Nonpartisan League and won, won an, an election and got their bank set up, and they got state granaries set up because they were also getting screwed by the, the – it was a big cartel. It was a railroad granary banking cartel that was taking their farms, not paying them properly for their grain, and then they didn't really have any alternative but to use this railroad to get their grain out of state. So that's why they set up their own granary that would be fair and their own bank that would be fair to them. Wow. I mean, I think the Bank of North Dakota is obviously a great template or example to look at in seeing how this would work for people. And you mentioned the kind of goal of keeping 
money within the state or the local economy. And I just generally like that principle because we have so many problems in so many different sectors of the whole societal pie. And most of the causes will be chalked up to the biggest multinational corporation in that industry, whether it's big pharma or the agricultural industry. I mean, there's or the oil industry. It's always these huge, huge companies and they're choking out local businesses. Obviously, you got the Walmart problem. If you have a goal of keeping money local somewhat to a degree that at least tilts the scales back in the favor of local businesses a little bit because now they can't even get enough of the pie to stay in business. That's right. And if the, if they take out loans, quite often they have to do credit card loans, which we're talking 16 or 18 percent. And here, here are the banks getting they are they can borrow at 2.25% or whatever it just got changed to. And they actually make that much on their reserves, which are just parked at the Federal Reserve. So they're doing absolutely no work making 2.25%. And they can borrow at 2.25%. And nowadays, most of their loans are credit card loans. That's, that's their big business these days, credit cards. So they are charging exorbitant rates, and besides the interest that they get on the credit cards, that's not even the big moneymaker for credit cards. It's what the merchant pays. The merchants are paying like 4% for basically what boils down to a one-month loan because it either if you pay your credit card off you know, in 30 days or 60, at most it's 60 days, and it might be one day, so it's somewhere between one and 60 days you'll pay off your credit card. That means they can do that 12 times a year times 4%. So that's 48% right there, plus what they make on the delinquent, you know, people that don't pay every month, the people that just pay interest. And that's many people just pay the interest because they they don't understand, for starters. One thing we really need to do is educate people that they are really killing themselves by not paying the full amount on their credit cards every every month because those balances build up, and you know that's what bankrupts people. Right. Yeah, they can get overwhelming for sure. And so, how do we make the case that public banking is what we want? What problems? specifically would this solve we got to get these listeners support because right now i think it kind of sounds a little vague but what problems that they're probably suffering from would this public banking solution specifically address well it could cut taxes for starters it could cut depending on what the interest rate is at which banks borrow you know, right now the Fed is dropping interest rates. It could, people are saying it could go to zero. It could go to negative. In Europe, the central banks are charging negative interests, which means that basically the central bank pays you for taking out a loan. So if the bank can borrow for a zero, like it could in 2008, 50% of the cost of infrastructure, for example, is financing or in other words, interest and fees. So if, if you're a bank and you can borrow at 0%, you could drop the cost of infrastructure in California by 50%. And right now we ha in California, we have $750 billion worth of 
infrastructure that needs to be built, and we don't have that money. So we could cut that to $375 billion right there by funding it through our own publicly owned banks. So that would either save money or it would mean we'd actually get some of this infrastructure built that right now we don't have. We, we need better roads. We need high-speed rail or, you know, we need some rail. We need – I live in Santa Clarita, which is right outside L.A., and there's absolutely no way to get into L.A. that's fast. So anyway, there, you know, we need a lot of things done, which would help stimulate business and they, they would bring businesses in. One proposed, one bill that I thought was great and I really backed was a bill to turn our California Infrastructure and Development Bank into a real bank. We have this revolving fund called California Infrastructure and Development Bank. It's a state institution, but it's very small. And what they do, they have a pot of money. They lend it out to businesses at below market rates. And the businesses love it. They just eat that those loans up because that's the only place they can get, like a 3% loan. Otherwise, they're reduced to borrowing on their credit cards. So there's a big demand for these loans, way more demand than there is money in this bank. So if you took just that pot of money, they, they had $300 million, I think, was their pot of money. If you took just that, and turned it into capital for a bank, made it a real depository bank where, where you would have the state put various forms of deposits into the bank, like the Bank of North Dakota does. In North Dakota, the Bank of North Dakota, by law, all of the state's deposits go into the Bank of North Dakota. So they have a huge deposit base. So let's say even just some of the state's deposits were required to go into this bank, you could expand your your portfolio your loan portfolio by a factor of 10 turn that 300 million into capital now you've got a 3 billion dollar bank so you can make 3 billion in loans instead of 300 million in loans and you know you can just build from there by as you get more profits you can turn that into capital or you can have the pension funds or We've got $500 billion in our pension funds, a huge amount of money, and that money is not being invested in California. It goes to Wall Street, and then Wall Street does with it what it, what it will, but it's not investing in our local businesses. So our money's going out, and it's not coming back. And the way to make it come back into our local economies would be to set up our own banking system, which it has a mandate to serve our local economy. <laughs> I like it. I like it. And obviously, universal basic income is a big solution in this book. And this is one that I am kind of split on. On one hand, we have a rigged economy and we had the trickle down approach shoved down our throats and everyone knows it didn't work. So screw it. Let's start the money at the bottom of the pyramid and increase the average person's purchasing power for once. But then on the other hand, I'm more of the opinion that we should look for decentralizing solutions, smaller regional local stuff, which the public banking seems to address. But I am concerned with the idea of a universal basic income being a more centralized idea because it's hard to beat these guys with big systems. So I'm torn. But what are your thoughts? 
Well, you could set a universal basic income up so that it really didn't involve any humans making decisions. In other words, it could all be automatic. And here's the problem. If all of our money is created by banks when they make loans, and they only create the principal, they don't create the interest, and over the course of a 30-year mortgage, you're going to pay at least as much in interest as you pay in principal. So where's that interest going to come from? It has to come from more loans. So debt always grows faster than the money supply. And that's why we have this business cycle of booms and busts, booms and busts. At some point, the cycle can't support the debt. And then, we, you know, you have foreclosures, collapse. The banks move in, they take the properties or the, whatever, the hedge funds buy up the properties real cheap, and then they lend them back, they rent them back to the people at exorbitant rates. Like, that's the reason we have this huge homeless problem in San Francisco, for example. Nobody can afford $4,000 a month for, for rentals. And those are rentals that used to be their own homes that they got turned out of because of the Wall Street crisis. So it was not their fault. It was, Wall Street's fault. Just recently, you know, there's just been this thing about the horrible homeless problems in San Francisco and LA, and they blame the local government. But, like, the local government can't fix it. But how are they supposed to fix it? First of all, they don't have the money. They need a source of money, which a public bank could do. But whose fault was that, that, that we've got all these homeless? It was the big banks that forced these people out of their homes they, I mean, first they sucked them into, agreed, they shouldn't have been in those loans, but they were, they, many of them were fraudulent. They were fraudulently induced to take those loans. And then, then they're turned out of their homes, and now they can't afford the same homes because, they, you know, they can't even afford the rents on the homes because they were bought up at distressed prices by BlackRock, this huge wealth fund. Anyway... So there is not enough money in the system. Even assuming that that money, well, first of all, it's not there to to pay off the interest. But besides that, if all of our money is the principal of these loans, many people don't spend that money back into the economy. Many The rich, you know, you've got a skewed economy. So people who don't need to spend the money, will save it in some way, or they'll put it in the speculative economy, which I would argue we've got two economies going. We've got the speculative, financialized economy, and then we've got the local, real, productive economy. And the money is just being sucked out of the local economy into the speculative economy, and it never comes back. It just keeps going round and round. They they bid each other's prices up, like if you, even housing, existing housing, the speculators come in and bid the price up and then somebody else will bid it up and you buy it because you think you can sell it for a higher price or stock is that money in the stock market never goes back to the company. It only goes to the previous owner of the stock. The only money the company gets was the initial IPO, the initial, initial public offering. So, other than that, it's just a big casino. So you've got all this money running round and round in this casino that gets bigger and bigger. You've got 21 to $35 trillion in offshore tax havens that obviously never come back. And a lot of money invested abroad that never comes back. So all that money is missing from the system, plus the money 
for interest that was never created in the first place. So you've always got a massive shortage of money, particularly in the local productive economy. And the only way to get to get that money back is you've got to just pay pay it into the system like basically for free. Just hand it over. Either you can either hand it over to individuals. I mean the reason I like the universal basic income idea, in fact, I don't even like the term. I think it should be called a national dividend that everybody should get. We need more money in the system, so you just figure out how much more we need and then cut that up, divide that by the population, and that's how much everybody gets. Mm. So that makes it very fair. And if you have any kind of debt, what you could do is just have it be automatic so that it automatically goes to pay down your debt. Like it goes automatically into your bank account. And your bank knows if you've got debt. You know, let's say you've got student debt or a mortgage or something. So it will automatically go to pay down that debt. That money is going to disappear. Money is created as a loan and it's extinguished when the loans are paid off. So... The debt will disappear, and so will the money. So it will not be inflating. It definitely won't be inflating consumer prices. So it won't be driving up prices. That's what everybody worries about, that you're going to be putting extra money in the system and that that's going to inflate prices. But to the extent that it pays down debt, it won't inflate prices. And the other people, 80% of the population carries debt. And the other 20% don't need that money for their consumer goods. They've already, their paycheck easily covers their food and their rent and all their usual expenses. So they're going to save it somewhere. So it's going to go in the speculative economy. It's not going to go into consumer, the consumer market either. So I would argue it's, it's not going to drive up prices. And to the extent that it does stay in the local economy, we need that money. We need that for increased productivity. As long as you've got the capacity, as long as you've got the ability to create factories or whatever, as long as you've got workers and materials, you need some extra money to get them together in order to produce goods. So the first thing that's going to happen with new money is you're going to create new products. And it's only when you run out of the ability to create to meet demand, you know, to, to make the products to meet the demand, the, the prices will go up. Yeah, I mean, I think this makes sense. If money can be created now by loaning it with interest, where only the bank wins in the end, then why can't it be created by just giving it to all the individual people with no interest and letting them spend it? I mean... <laughs> Even to my simple mind, that seems like it would it would work just fine. And I'm with you also on the idea of not calling it universal basic income because that does sound kind of welfare-ish. But I like the idea of the dividend, which I got to ask about Andrew Yang. He's really the only candidate who's talking about this, and he likes the term freedom dividend. Are you on the Yang gang? Well, I totally agree. We need that. But he would do it with taxes. And to me, that kind of defeats the purpose. If you're going to pull it out of the system before you put it back in, then you're not really adding to the system. And our problem, our debt problem is that we need a debt jubilee. That's the way they, I just wrote an article on that. It was actually a Michael Hudson book called And Forgive Them Their Debts, that the way in ancient Samaria, they or for Samaria, Babylon, Assyria, they kept their money system going for two millennia, 2,000 years, 
at the same interest rate <laughs> without even modifying the interest rate. And the way they did it was, so they had a relatively high interest, but the way they kept the debt from overwhelming the system was that they had periodic debt jubilees. So that the emperor or the king, whenever they'd have a new king, the king would wipe out all the debts and declare a clean slate. Everybody would start all over again. Or whenever they had a big victory or, you know, they had different reasons for declaring a debt jubilee. And then that was incorporated into the Old Testament in, I forgot which book, but anyway, <laughs> it's in there with a, a debt jubilee every 49 years. So we don't have that. And so debt accumulates until it overwhelms the system. So so that's that's my one problem with the idea of doing it through taxes is that you're just pulling it out of one pot and putting it into another pot. That's fair. I mean, definitely. It was really just this idea that intrigued me that we should get it from the big tech companies. I get what you're saying about taxes because he's like, we should just take a penny or a half a penny from every transaction at Amazon or every Google ad sale or some of these transitions that we're going to be making to the automated world. I mean, they're going to have a lot of gains. We should make sure those gains are spread out with the people instead of just giving them to five companies, kind of like Alaska does with the oil industry. If you, you want to use our land, you're going to pay us a little piece of that. And, you know, I've also heard people make the case that our data is more valuable than oil now. Well, when was the last time you got a data check? You know, there's a lot of companies using your data. Maybe you should get a, a piece back. Yeah, no, I, that that is a good argument. I mean, that's definitely a good point. But what I was arguing for was something different, a way to solve this debt problem. Mm -hmm. One one counter argument that I think is just rubbish that people make is that that if everybody got a universal basic income, they'd get lazy. Well, let's call it a dividend. How much do those people who are making that argument get in dividends from their stocks every single month. And does that make them lazy? No. I mean, I get dividends and I get social security and I get a pension. I'm retired. Does that make me lazy? Absolutely not. I work harder than I've ever worked in my life. But what it does do is free you up to do something a little more meaningful than slaving away at some meaningless job, maybe two jobs that, you know, that, where you can barely make ends meet, you hate your work, you don't have any energy left over to do anything but come home and turn on the TV and crack open a beer or, you know, do the laundry and take care of the kids if you're the mom. So what it does do is give you a little freedom to maybe quit your job and look for something that's going to be more satisfying, maybe hold out for decent wages for a job that's not paying you properly, that sort of thing. I mean, it just gives people more leverage, but there have been studies that show that it doesn't make people lazy. It makes them more productive, that they go back to school or they start their own business. I mean, I'm thinking like in Africa or India where they it's like a really small business, but they go out and sell oranges in the street or something. You know, they they do something. They can buy the oranges that they're going to sell. They've got they've got some money for capital to to start something new. Right. Actually, I <laughs> I re read somewhere that if in Africa, I used to live in Africa, and I know it's just the mentality. The men tend to be 
Well, it's the women that are the workers. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. (laughs) apparently if you give the money to the women, they stay up all night and they do really industrious things. You know, they, but if you give it to the men, they do tend to drink it away. (laughs) (laughs) But that's just, you know, it's, it's just, I shouldn't say that this kind of way. Uh, It's just, it's just a funny thing. I know. I agree. You know, maybe you have a passion for teaching guitar lessons, but you are stuck selling cell phones for AT&T because guitar lessons alone is too risky. You know, I mean, if you had a freedom dividend or a dividend of some kind, if you had $1,000 a month, maybe you'd be like, okay, well, this $1,000 plus what I can make as a guitar teacher is going to be enough to get by. Because I think part of the trick is an amount of money that covers people's basic needs, but definitely doesn't let them live high on the hog. It's like, hey, this we get you to rung one. And then if you want to climb to rung two, three, four, five, you know, do a little extra. And I mean, people could and they wouldn't be so scared to take that leap. I mean, it was a leap I had to take to become independent with this show to go from a corporate paycheck to this. It's very, very hard. I mean, it's scary. It's almost impossible. It's yeah, it's very scary. So just to ease that pressure, I think a lot of people have ideas in their head that they're just dying to take the leap with but we just need to make that leap a little closer you know close that gap a little bit because we don't want people falling through the cracks yeah and the those contributions are are so much better for society in general We, we need to pull out people's creativity and see what they can really contribute but then you could argue that there's probably a big corporate you know, structure that doesn't want that. They want to be able to exploit people at the lowest wages and the most hours they can get out of them. So that's why we have to push back on behalf of these poor workers. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you. And you mentioned a debt jubilee, and that's an interesting prospect. I sometimes wonder how realistic it is because I can't fathom banks just after winning the game of Monopoly being like, all right, reset. But You made the case that historically there's a real precedent for it to keep the machine going. And it's interesting because when you look at something like this, you can kind of scan for trial runs or indications that they're testing it out for a potential larger rollout. And Joseph Farrell, a guest we have every so often, was just covering this in his weekly updates. But didn't Chase just do something like this in Canada where they forgave all credit card debt? Yes, I, I'm not sure what what that was all about. I, apparently, they just discovered that it was easier to do it that way than to try to collect because they, I think they shut down that division, right? Whatever it was. I, I don't remember. I didn't look real closely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. They, they set up a whole infrastructure to do credit cards in Canada. And then I guess they realized that, hey, if we stop paying these employees, we close these offices, it's actually going to be cheaper than the the large amount of money we spend just to have a place to service the debt. Let's just close shop and cut our losses. But some people have speculated that that's a little bit of a test run by one of the big banks to see what kind of effects in a small market debt jubilees or debt forgiveness would have because they're thinking maybe potentially for a bigger type of rollout. Well, I would suspect, you know, they don't really make their money on people paying that money back anyway. They, they're they essentially making loans for free because if you pay back the loan in 30 days, they're not even going to have to come up with the money. 
there, it's just an advance that they write it into the merchant's account. And at the end of 30 days, you pay up and then they transfer the money from your account into the merchant's account. So where they're really making their money is on that 4% that they get from the merchant every single month on every single product that's sold. And so if they just shut the business down, you know, they've shut out, shut down that 4%, but they've, they've shut down the whole business that they don't really care about those loans that loans of money that they just created on their books. And so they write them off. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. The just credit card processing fees are really big. It's kind of like the idea of a freedom dividend of taking a little chunk from every transaction. There's already someone taking a little chunk from every transaction. Let me tell you, because yeah, <laughs> I see it every day. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hmm. I know. And we're here, we're paying 10% sales tax. And I mean, that was one thing I wrote about was that we could have a financial transactions tax of 0.1% on stock trades. And it wouldn't hurt you as a stockholder because how often, even if you buy stock once a week, which seems to me pretty, most people don't, you know, they probably buy stock maybe a new stock once every six months or so, and then they just hold it. I don't know. I'm not sure what most people do. But anyway. I'd say so, yeah. For average investors, let's say you buy a new stock once a month and you pay 0.1% on it. You're not even going to notice that. That's just a small. Who it would really hit up would be the high-frequency program traders and you know the ones that shave a little bit off of every trade, and they're basically making their money on volume. But you could reap a lot more money that way than from taxes. And traders, I forget my numbers now, but I think it's $5 trillion U.S. dollars are traded every single day. I mean, that's the, the rate of turnover of U.S. dollars. So all that money could be taxed at 0.1%. Right now... Financial trades are not taxed. The only things that are taxed in the form of, you know, trades are consumer products. So these are the things people really need, actual real goods and services that people actually need get taxed. Whereas all those financial trades where all you're doing is making money off of money and not producing any products, they don't get taxed at all. So anyway, we could do a much fairer system. You can't squawk about a 0.1% tax when the rest of us Ordinary people are paying a 10% tax. They're paying 18% on their credit cards when banks are paying almost nothing to borrow. We've got a two-tiered system here. We've got the, the wealthy system and the poor system. A tale of two systems. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I love big solutions, definitely conversationally, although they do seem difficult to implement. If there's people listening as we're kind of getting to the end of the road here, if there's people listening who would love this kind of public banking thing, but maybe don't have time to wait, I mean, if we never get there, how can we shield ourselves personally from the risks of our shoddy system if we can't get some big sweeping change passed in time? Mm, well, I'm <laughs> I try not to give investment advice people were saying years ago to stay away from the stock market. And if you'd done that, you would have missed the, you know, the longest run in history, I think. So point. it's hard to say because we've got regulators who are always tampering with things. We've got a plunge protection team 
they could prop the system up a lot longer than anybody anticipates that they can. Supposedly, the weak link in the system right now is Deutsche Bank in Europe, but Deutsche Bank is managing all those derivatives, and they're not going to let they're not going to let it go down. I don't know how they'll prop it up, but they'll figure out some way to do it. Because if they did, they would wipe out all this sovereign debt. You know, it would. Anyway, they know they they don't want to collapse the system, and so they'll cheat if they have to. But they'll they'll keep it propped up somehow. So. I, you know, I guess I'm not, I <laughs> dare not give advice on that. I mean, I could say buy gold, sure, gold is always, always a good investment. And if you can afford it, buy a plot of land where you can have a garden. I mean, I live in a condominium. I don't even have that choice here, but. Right. It gets hard because people are already struggling. So how do you tell struggling people to be able to not struggle in a system that's built for them to struggle. It is difficult. I mean, I think probably self-sufficiency and growing your own food is the direction to go rather than worrying about the green paper aspect of your life. Try to figure out ways to generate the things that you spend the money on because you can't generate the money directly. So at least you can offset those costs with a nice garden and your learning skills that might keep you alive longer than the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, and probably the one piece of advice is it's not a good time to go into debt. No. <laughs> if, you can, if you can stay out of debt, do not carry a balance on your credit card. Much better to just do without. Mm. Man, well, I do love the solutions you talk about in Banking on the People and that you brought up today, but it just seems like a catch-22 because, as you said, you kind of need a crisis to get anything done, but it would be great to do something before the crisis. <laughs> yeah, well, I was complaining to a man who's actually older than I am, which means very old. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it seems so slow getting these public banks. We've been at it for 10 years. And he said, oh, no, he says, this is short. You're making great progress. He said he looks back at uh, things like the suffragettes, which was in, what was it? 1912 or so, you know, in the aughts, 19 aughts, and they didn't get, you know, it takes like 30 years or so to to create change. So these movements take time to build. So as long as we've got some movement here, then things are good. Things are looking up. Well, cheers to that. And I do think it's such noble work you're doing. So many people are just complaining they're not putting their energy into anything. You are the founder and chair of the Public Banking Institute. You're writing these books. You're blogging. You are, you know, a great example of how to try to pursue a change that would help everybody. And I guess I did want to ask you about the Public Banking Institute. I mean, are you guys mainly focused on California? I know you live in California, as do I. No, we're all over the country. So people can look for local chapters and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Go to our website, publicbankinginstitute.org, and we'll direct you wherever, you know, we've got all those resources. We've got lots and lots of resources. That's what we do is we put out information. So That's great. I write articles. We have a newsletter every week with the, what's going on and, you know, what you can join if interested, and then lots of backup information on our website if you want to start something locally. Beautiful, beautiful. I do think that's the way to go, using the digital to help our local communities organize rather than just these big global Twitter-style communities. We should be using the digital to make our local stuff a lot more efficient. 
And I guess I would ask, of course, I hope people go there and get involved and see what's happening in their local microcosm. Are you endorsing local candidates and that kind of stuff? I mean, that's going to be a component, right? Yeah, unfortunately, we are a 501c3, so we're not allowed to endorse specific candidates. But we can endorse public banking as a as a platform. And they can endorse you, I guess. I mean, they can say that they're a fan of what you do, and they endorse public banking. Yeah. <laughs> Rules, you know, you got. we have to abide by them. Not everybody does, but hey. Of course, I had no... I ran as a green and I had no intention of winning. They just, somebody asked me to run and I didn't realize it was going to be so much work, <laughs> but there are yeah, so many rules. They make it very difficult to jump through all these hoops. Right on. Well, I do thank you again for your time. Ellenbrown.com is the website. Is there anything else to give them in terms of following you or keeping up to date on your work and what you got going on? My own blog is, like you said, ellenbrown.com and then publicbankinginstitute.org. My articles almost always go up on Truthdig first, but they go quite a few places. And then my books are all on Amazon, among other places. If you hate Amazon, then <laughs> they're at Barnes & Noble and other places, too. Very cool. And you've written some diverse books. We talked last time about books that get into the medical field and alternative cures and stuff like that yeah those are those are my first 10 books were medical and health but i realized at some point that the pharmaceutical industry and the banking cartel were sort of one big cartel and if if you really wanted to fix the problem you had to fix the banking problem so that's how i jumped subjects well amen i'm glad you did i think this is really great stuff and there's fewer people focused on this so Thank you. It was really great to talk to you again. I love the book. Definitely adds a lot of clarity to a complicated economic mess. And also, despite the overflooded inbox, I always stay subscribed to your blog and I always find the pieces you write there really interesting as well. So thanks again for taking the time and keep fighting the good fight. Okay, thanks, Greg. Great talking to you. Well, there ain't no party like a higher side party because a higher side party don't stop until it gets to two hours. But Either way, Ellen Brown, a real advocate for the people, big fan because she brings forth these creative and empowering banking paradigms that we almost can't conceive of because struggle, debt, scarcity, stress, it's all been part of the money system as we know it, and it seems hard to even decouple that kind of thing. I mean, how could we ever have a system that shares the wealth it creates or starts the money supply with the people? Certainly it wouldn't work. I do hear that a lot with some of these really creative ideas where people say, well, it's a nice thought, but there are just too many of us. If they could do it that way, they would have done it. Is that so? Why? So they could just voluntarily give up their place at the top of the pyramid, swimming in the back sweat of the people? I mean, come on. But I just love what Ellen Brown is about and her commitment to advocating for a fairer and better world. And it's not easy. You're going up against one hell of a machine. It can be exhausting and sometimes they really can feel untouchable. I mean, talking about what system would work, oftentimes it is complex to me. Math and economic structures at this large of a scale, I think, is mentally challenging for anyone who doesn't dedicate a lot of time to it on a routine basis. 
but I wholeheartedly endorse the exploration of fresh new ideas from people who want to see the balance of power restored to the masses or stored. I don't know if it can be restored if we never really had the power, but you get what I mean. And will solution X, Y, or Z do that? Will this thing or that thing get us there? I can't always say, but Alan is very convincing in her book. Public banking sounds like a real step in the right direction. And when you digest how broken and unfair our actual system is, if you told a lot of people about fractional reserve banking on paper, they'd probably say, well, you can't do that. That would completely break the system and it would eventually go out of control. Well, so what? They did it anyway. So I think that we can find a way to make things work if we want them to work. But I've been reading Ellen in my inbox for several years. She's an interesting vessel for these kinds of conversations. And she has this long history of also writing about alternative medicines that have been discredited and banned by Big Pharma. We touched on it last time. I thought about trying to go there with some of our time today. But it has been a while since we talked about banking. So we left it at that. But another reason to go back to our last conversation is that we talked a lot about the 2008 crash and the bank bailouts. And for a lot of people, this stuff is too complex or too dry to really get our heads around. And I have this in my notes. I don't think I said this in the interview. But when it comes to how the banks have operated since the 2008 collapse, Ellen says that by 2017, the six largest U.S. banks had increased their assets by around 40% since the crisis and controlled almost 70% of the assets in the U.S. financial system itself. J.P. Morgan Chase, the largest U.S. bank, had more than $2.4 trillion in domestic deposits, larger than most countries, and between 2007 and 2017, the three largest U.S. banks grew their domestic deposits by 180%. So if they were too big to fail before, they've only gotten bigger. Clearly, that was just an excuse to rob us blind. But Ellen doesn't get discouraged, and she cites those real-world examples to show that a change isn't impossible, and we could do some of these things. Of course, Andrew Yang came up a bit today. I totally get what Alan is saying, that it seems more efficient to just start the money supply with the people rather than trying to extract it back through taxes on a select group of companies. But I do like what I hear from Andrew Yang to a degree. I don't think it really matters, but he is the only one talking about automation and getting paid for all the money made off of our data and how Silicon Valley has taken over. And if we don't upgrade our economic system and make some changes, a lot of people are going to get crushed. And there's actually a Daily Beast article where Richard Greenwald refers to the last debates and says, Andrew Yang was only there because he raised the money and registered in the polls by packing the policies of elite technocrats in a coating of Clinton-esque pain-feeling paternalism. And that's pretty harsh. And I get what he's saying. 
I absolutely am familiar with problem reaction solution and how the template applies to something like universal basic income, but unions are thoroughly busted, wages are stagnant, everything is more expensive than it used to be, and automation is coming. It's not just coming if we roll out a universal basic income, it's going to come either way. So why wait until we have a crisis? I don't need it, but I can acknowledge that it's much easier to help keep people in the game than it is to get them back in once they're living in a tent under the highway. I also like the universality of the whole thing. Black, white, rich, poor. You get this because we're all in one community together. There's really nothing else like that. People are often talking about taking money from one group and giving it to another. Take it from the rich. Give it to the middle class. Or we need to cut welfare benefits because they're too expensive. I agree with Ellen when she says that a method of relief like forgiving college loans, it just it doesn't sit well with everyone because some people made the decision not to go into debt for college. And that was probably a smart decision when they saw the options. But how many people who don't have a lot of options now would have gotten degrees if they knew the loan could just be forgiven? I just like that there isn't an us-versus-them dynamic to a freedom dividend, as there is with that college loan relief idea or reparations or any of that sort of stuff. Andrew Yang wants to pull it directly from the tech sector, which I like, but there are issues there. Which companies exactly? What criteria is it that makes you fall under the jurisdiction of this particular tax? And how can we keep a company like Amazon from just skirting that too? But Yang drops other little small things that I resonate with, like he wants to make robocalls illegal and turn the State of the Union address into a PowerPoint presentation about the real metrics in the country rather than flowery speeches. And those things are no-brainers that just draw such a stark distinction between what the rest of the candidates spend their time talking about and his message. I don't really endorse any candidates, but I'm just saying there's some interesting stuff there. Check out some of his interviews. But back to Ellen, I do really love the creative ideas like a regional digital currency or a local tax credit or dividend that could be used as a currency within local markets. Because the big thing that people say about food stamps is that it's corporate welfare. It's basically big companies like Kraft and Kellogg's and Coca-Cola getting that money. They can take the national allotment for WIC and food stamps and know that they're getting a certain percentage of it because food stamps are so limited in what you can use them on. And people in poverty end up buying these corporate products because they can stretch them out. So it is like they're taking money right from our taxes, but through the middleman of the poor. That's the argument. So if you're going to give people some sort of assistance program, it could be one that keeps the money local, keeps it in the community cycle, rather than the multinational trash food makers sucking it up while making our people sick, weak, and tired at the same time. I mean, when it comes down to it, I am going to live, work, and play like the system is never going to be there for me, and I advise people to do the same, but we can still advocate for those people who we know just aren't going to get it together as the screws get tighter and tighter.
I mean, we all know people who are probably going to slip through the cracks without something. Damned if you do, damned if you don't when it comes down to it. But hey, I hope you had a good time today. Of course, if you liked the first hour, you should become a Plus member and get the second hour of this show and every show. But today with Ellen, we talked about a diverse number of things. We talked about why going back to a gold standard is the wrong answer. We talked about how Uncle Sam launders marijuana money. Where big agra, big pharma billionaires are compromising the marijuana market with GMO weed. Why Ellen is actually hopeful about the millennial generation's abilities to make real change. How the loan process is used to increase inequality and further racial and class-based divides. Positive uses for digital and cryptocurrencies that Ellen has incorporated into her models. And like I said digitizing local economies, and creating online markets for local goods. So I liked it. It's been a long time since we talked about money, and yet it makes the world go round. So big thanks again to Ellen, and I'm going to get out of here. That wraps up the month of September for me. And it's your move, banking bastards, money masters, and nefarious financial sorcerers. Your fucking drink and a smoke listen to the cast we shine a shiny spotlight put criminals on blast the pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance dupont windsor and rothschild the kids don't stand a chance the kids don't the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. We're looking for the answers to questions never asked. So we come to the Carwood for the higher side chats. The pinstripe men of morning. And families of finance DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance We try to get a glance We're working on the numbers Resistance must advance The pinstripe men of mourning And families of finance DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. <laughs>